här har ni Ingemar Fast, konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Ni ska nu få lyssna på ett samtal som gick av stapeln den 3 oktober 2018 på Internationell författarscen. Och gästerna på scenen är Sheila Hetti i Kanada, Jonas Hassen Kemiri och samtalet leddes av Marlene Levi från Svenska Dagbladet. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Hello. So we're here to talk about two very different books with a lot of things in common. And I think we'll see if you agree that at the core of both is this incredibly challenging and difficult and rewarding task which is relating to the people around us, not the least those that are the very closest to us. Um, we have here Motherhood and the Father Clause, two books that are well about in some ways what your previous book's title was, How Should a Person Be? Um, and I saw you, Sheila, in this really interesting conversation with Carlo Wiknausgård um, on YouTube. And you very politely started by asking, when talking about the protagonist of my struggle, can I say you? So I'm going to ask the two of you the same thing. Would you like? How would you like to talk about your protagonists? <laughs> well, I would say the character. Um, but if you say you, I won't get angry and beat you or anything. I mean, there is... Um, there's a connection to me and there's also a connection to an um an imagined me um so but i tend to say the character the character yeah, yeah. um i think i the uh, the main character i think i refer to him in my head as the sun the sun the sun yeah, yeah because it circles around three main characters and none of them have names so like in my head I needed to name them in some way so I think of them as like the sister the son and the father yeah good thought we could perhaps start about talking a little bit about decisions and decision making um motherhood is about not being able to make your mind up about whether to become a parent um and the father clause is perhaps more about well having children and not really knowing whether you're up to the task or able to do it so there's indecision at the core of both would you agree that they're based around indecision certainly my book is yeah um yes the problem of whether or not to have a child is one of the animating questions of the book and it's what the narrator struggles with throughout the whole entire thing um not only whether to have a child, but what it means not to, what it means not to want a child, um, how you can how you can actually know what you want, given that there's so much pressure to have a child. Um, and then the body has its own desires um, to have sex and 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 um, and and perhaps to have a child, and then you don't know if is your body you. Can you say, I don't want what my body wants? So there's all these things which complicate the question. So there's an ambivalence, but the ambivalence is complicated by the fact that it's actually very difficult to know what you want. Um, and even the fact that other people want you to have a child, 
you are part of other people, you are part of society, you can't just say, I'm a completely distinct thing. Um, so how do you unravel all that? Yeah. Yeah, I thought when reading your book, I thought it was interesting also, I could really relate to that feeling of when you're a little bit insecure about what to do, it's very easy to kind of desperately try to find answers outside. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the narrator or the character does is to kind of put blind faith or at least try this thing with... Um, Throwing the coins. Yeah, with the coins. How... how I, I, when it started... In the book, I was um, so. W what the narrator does is that she continuously asks um, the coins questions, asks her to to guide her for guidance in a way. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting because uh, the narrator knows that the coins don't know the answer. I know as a reader that I that the coins don't have the answer, but I still want to know what the coin said. Yeah, exactly. It's very weird that I'm just I like, know. every time she asks something, I'm just like, darn. You know? yeah. and, and, I know, and, and in a way, it was such an easy fictional setup, but still it was as if I wanted to believe the coins because the narrator is so, I guess, confused in some ways. So. Yeah, you kind of can't help it. So the narrator throws three coins and if it's two or three heads, the answer is yes. And if it's two or three tails, the answer is no. And the three coins come from um, my years of um, working with the I Ching. But of course, yes and no has nothing to do with the I Ching. Um, but yeah, and then you, so all the coin tosses are real. I didn't make anything up, yeses or noes. And what you say, is, the reason you want to know what the coins say is because they very quickly take on a character or a personality. They, mm. they are an other, you know, with, it, with, their, with its own distinct um, attributes. And, yeah, they're very tricky and mm. a little nasty. And, and yeah, it turns out that randomness is very unkind. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and very funny. And funny, I hope, yeah. Um, but the son in your book does a little bit the same with the internet. He keeps asking questions in a way. about how to live, yeah. but also, well, what car to buy. He's got this blind faith in Googling. Yeah. Well, uh, when he thinks I, there's I a can perfect. Relate. Yeah, yeah. Th this idea of perfection, I think, uh, is a link between the both main characters and this idea that the answer I'm, I may not have the answer but the answer is out there somewhere yeah. so if I toss the coins if I google enough one day I will find the answer uh, what that's to me in my both in the book but also in my personal life I think I've, I grew up feeling for different reasons that the world was a little bit dangerous so whatever I could do to control that feeling of the world being dangerous I, you know, whatever strategy I could use to control it was useful. And one of the strategies was, of course, to write about it. That was one strategy of kind of getting the feeling that I could keep the world at bay or in, in place in some ways. Um, one of the things that the main character does is that he, I think it's linked to having a baby as well, and, and, and a feeling of control. When he realizes that his girlfriend is pregnant, the first thing he does is he wants to find the perfect baby stroller. Mm -hmm. And he spends like hours and hours and months and years basically trying to find that stroller. And what is that? Well, that's a feeling of um, lack of control, but also feeling of maybe feeling as an outsider in the process of baby making or, or, right. or creating a family. Like he's, he's, I think he's terribly afraid to be 
left out, left on the outside. So what he's doing is like, okay, I can't make a baby, but I'm, I'm going to find the perfect stroller. And even that, he fails to, with, yeah. <laughs> with doing even that, with, which makes it even more painful. But that, that was my reaction. When I first found out that my girlfriend was pregnant, that was like, I was really dedicated to finding the best practical things as a way to kind of, I don't know why, but maybe there was a thing like, also. A new world is opening. I know that she goes all through all these, uh, my girlfriend goes through all these sh bodily changes. I'm still the same, but I'm going to Google the hell out of this com computer. <laughs> you know, and, like. and, and the funny thing about that character, and possibly you, is that... Um, yeah. is it, One version it, of me. Is yeah. that... Um, He's better he at Googling, in, I think that's the difference. <laughs> he doesn't go into the world to actually test it out. So yeah. he wants to buy a car and he spends a, six months Googling and yeah. the girlfriend says, well, have you test dr driven any cars? And he yeah. says no. Yeah. So, and, and the same with the stroller. He ha mm. doesn't actually go into the world and touch these things. Mm. So his desire to make something in sort of equivalent to the baby mm. is is so intellectual it's yeah. it's it's not only not making a baby but it's not engaging in anything material which yeah. is the opposite of what a baby is yeah. right it, yeah. he wants to actually just stay in the world of thinking yes and yes. not touch them yeah and being very and that's a link between the both narrators as well being very afraid of feelings yeah just being intellectualizing everything yeah, because that's feelings can become very dangerous if they take over too much. I think that's also kind of key to what he's doing. So he's like desperately trying, and that's a link to your narrative as well, that there's this theory, trying to cling, almost cling on to theory because theory is safe. Yeah. And then like body, feelings, um, is like a lack of control and, and, and something maybe more threatening to you as a, uh, you as in, not you personally, yeah, but a, like, a, a yeah, yeah, as a, yeah. Um, but that discussion was like, that's a thing that I, I can really relate to that feeling of, of wanting to find the perfect thing instead of, um, yeah, touching it. Yeah, and you to know, find and the perfect thing as opposed to the most suitable thing for you. So if there's this like exactly. er perfect yeah. thing in the world that everyone can agree is perfect. Because yeah. the girlfriend says, the girlfriend thinks about the guy, uh, her boyfriend, and, he, yeah. and she says, how strange it is and how difficult for him that he thinks that there's one answer. Yeah. You know, because for her, it's clear that they're all good cars for different people. Yeah. yeah. He wants the best car for every person, <laughs> yeah. you know? It's very tricky to find. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the same yeah. thing with the title, like, how should a person be? It's like, well, yeah. you really think there's a best person to be, mm. you know, that we can all be that. Mm. Mm. But yeah, there's something intellectually very gratifying mm. about that idea, whether mm. or not. The fashion. character, <laughs> the narrator in uh, Motherhood, she's in constant oscillation and she talks about the issue of wanting a child. It's a secret I keep from myself. Yeah. Um, there's that, you also talked about the division between your body and you. Is it difficult to see yourself as a whole, as one thing? <laughs> Yeah, I think because, I mean, one of the things in the book that um, I try to show uh, in the narrative or is the um, the chapters at a certain point become, they start to follow the menstrual cycle. So there's a chapter that's called PMS, and then there's a chapter that's called um, um, oh. follicular, which is, you know, when the body starts um, building up 
the uterus starts building up and then with, um, to prepare for the baby and then there's the next chapter is ovulation and then the next chapter, well, I can't remember how it goes, but it's the four, four things in the cycle. And one, one of the difficulties of knowing herself or feeling whole is that um, in, the, in the PMS chapter, everything looks really dark and you know, she hates her boyfriend, of course, and you know, he's the enemy and everything, you know, the idea of having a child is um, gonna destroy her. You know? and, and then two weeks later, with ovulation, her perspective is completely other. It's like, this would be the most beautiful thing in my life, and I'm with the best man, you know, you could be, one could be. And, and so it's not even a problem of feeling whole, but the, the fact that the whole rotates constantly, and it's in constant, sh constantly shifting. And so the question is like, how do you assimilate these, these polar feelings and perspectives, how do you understand that this, how do you resolve them into one point of view on the question of having a child, the question of with the, whether you're with a good person or not a good person, you know, and mm. that just colors everything. Mm. This is even one scene when, when the narrator asks her boyfriend, are you always this kind to me? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm being normal. <laughs> it's just like, it's very weird. <laughs> because yeah. Yeah, she doesn't see him through the usual lens, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and none of those lenses are the real one. Yeah. Because yeah. they're all, yeah. 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 The son in your book has also got dark thoughts. He thinks yeah. sometimes quite horrible things in relation to his own children. Yes, yes. Uh, I think he has a hard time with them being kids. I think there's something about their kind of expressiveness and being totally free and being totally, yeah, convinced that they rule the world, that they can actually just go out and find the best car without like spending 10 weeks Googling it. Like there's something about their freedom that attacks his sense of self. So there are moments when they are... Um, very much in need of him, basically crying out for the presence of him. And he can't take it. Like he, he sees their cry for help as some kind, well, almost like he has to block it out or like um, wants them to be more adult than they are. And I, I'm not sure why, but I think one of the reasons may, may, may be that maybe he, he comes from a background where he did not have the possibility to be a kid. Maybe he had to grow up early. So any sign of them being kids is kind of a frustration in him that says, did I also have a possibility to be that free? Like, I've never felt that freedom. And that is, of course, on a good day, you could say, like, that's lovely that my kids are not me. On a bad day, you could see, well, actually, maybe my kids are everything that I couldn't be. And that creates some kind of frustration. So you're completely right. There are moments, especially when they, they don't sleep, that he is kind of, he has this frustration of actually wanting to physically hurt them um, or like um, both hurting them, but also continuously kind of competing with them, which is weird because he's in his 30s and they're like one and four. <laughs> <laughs> and he's still like, I'm going to beat you. <laughs> yeah. Um, um. And he, it seems to me, one of the things that separates him from a childlike attitude is that he's constantly seeing himself from the outside yes. and wanting the approval of other people yes. and trying to adjust himself to what he imagines other people are. So he's performing, yes. which just seems like the opposite of a, of a healthy child yeah. who's kind of unconscious of the idea that he or she is being watched and yeah. evaluated. Yeah, no, I think you're completely right. And I, I, 
I'm not sure what, where that comes from. Maybe it comes from having a parent from an early age that showed you that you're okay, but you ha in some sense you have to perform in order to get my love. Yeah. You know, um, I think that's maybe a key to understanding him, that, that he has this idea, okay, I'm all right, but in order to receive like 100% of the love of my, especially in this case, it's, it's a dad who has been distant in, in periods of his life, he has had this feeling of needing to perform his, himself, I think. So that's why when he becomes a parent, he, all of these things all of a sudden become like, become alive again, I think, because he sees the father, his father in himself in some ways. Um, yeah. I think one of the strongest links between our books is so fascinating to read your work is that this thread of freedom, like what does it mean to be free? Yeah. That's, I have no answer to that. So, you know, <laughs> 350 pages later, I have no answer, but there's this, what, what, how, how do we, what does it mean, especially to be free? Like there is this idea, you know, that freedom, I don't know what it is to be free, but one of the, um, Things I remember when I grew up was that I had a f feeling that, because my father was like present in my life from time to time, and then from time to time he was kind of not present. I always had the feeling that he was very free when he was not with us. Right. That he was like, that was freedom. You know, he he didn't have to take care of boring practical things. Um, now, when I think of him, I think that that's his choice of leaving a family was resulted in something very far from freedom, like very, yeah, um, a very dark and uh, isolated place. Um, so I think in my mind, that choice of leaving created a paradise which turned out to be a very um, dark place. In some way. Yeah. I mean, there's this, like, question with when you talk about freedom of, like, there's freedom from, yeah. so, like, freedom from the family, and there's freedom to. And so maybe with the father, he understands freedom as freedom from, yeah. but not freedom to. So now you're free, but what are you going to do with it? Yeah. And if a person only is thinking of freedom as freedom from, then you're kind of, you can't do anything with it. And yeah. it's not a freedom, it's a kind of lostness or, yeah, it's funny talking about this because I just interviewed Rachel Cusk um, for, um, for a radio in Toronto and... Uh, and she has a passage that I had her read in her book. I think it was from Outline. And yes, it's from Outline. And so she's on a boat with a man and she starts swimming um, and she goes into the water and she, has, and she says this thing about like, um, I always have this feeling when I'm swimming like I just want to swim out forever and I feel this tug at the center of my chest which is like the tug to... Um, yeah, this desire for freedom. Mm. And then she says, but now I'm at the age where I understand that it's an illusion, that, that I'm actually not swimming towards anything except for oblivion and, and, and alienation. Mm. And there's nothing actually out there um, except being lost. And she says, even though I know this, I still want to swim out. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the thing about, about middle age, which both yeah. of our characters are kind of in that yeah. period, is like, you know that there's nothing actually out there that can um, be as perfect as this idea of freedom that we have. Yeah, yeah. But, we, but you still have the longing and yeah. your character still tries yeah. to 
um, solve that problem. Yeah. But that was the thing, because I kept thinking of three, uh, there was one scene that I loved when the <laughs> narrator, because the narrator has all these uh, dreams, um, and there was one dream where the narrator, all of a sudden her breast starts sagging, and they turn into hooves. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and I felt like, She's free because that's what you do with hooves. Like yeah, hooves. You can walk. How, uh, how do you say uh, hoof? Hoovara. Uh, hoof, right? yeah, yeah. Feet of, uh, of a yeah, horse. The feet, yeah, the yeah. feet of a horse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she looks down at her breast and she's like, why are they so long? Um, and she's like, oh, because they're hooves. And I can use them which to walk. Logic. Yeah, yeah which dream, is so disgusting. Like, yeah. But it was very great yeah. in the dream. And the, <laughs> and the narrator says, because I, I thought that the, the final line of that section would be like, time to run free. Like, that's what you do with hooves. And the narrator says, uh, it, I had the hooves so I could walk on all fours. <laughs> Which is, like, completely different to, like, being able to run away. It's just, yeah, like... just to walk. Yeah, walks more slowly. <laughs> <laughs> on, on, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's... Yeah, there's, there's a lot of dreams in my book, and they're all... They all seem to be about staying put in some way. So the character wants to have a solution. And one of the dreams is, um, actually, there's a line in the, in, in the dream which says, be in the same place differently. Um, and then, the, and the dreams are actually from my real life. So like, I remember having that dream. And then another dream that I had, which is in the book, is this dream where it says, um, if you destroy everything in your life, and then when you build it up the second time, it resembles the first time, then your life couldn't be any different from that. Mm. Um, or maybe I took that out of the book, but like I still think about that. And I think that that's true. Like we have this idea, I, have the, I think that's like what destiny or fate, which we're also both interested in, mm. what destiny or fate means to me. It's like the compulsion to repeat the same things in the same way, which I guess is like this Nietzschean idea of like, you know, the eternal return of the same. But yeah, this idea that, you know, you get divorced and you think I'm going to have a brand new life and then you end up marrying a man and he's different, but like you're still married and you're still in the same city. And, and it's like, oh, the, the actual, <laughs> your ability to make radically different structures is actually much narrower than you think it is. Mm. Mm. Is this also something that's related to, well, middle age, that age between 30 and 40, when you suddenly realize that you're going older? I don't know, the decision-making as well. I felt quite cocksure about things when I was younger, and certainly between 30 and 40, I was faced with these huge decisions that I had to make, and suddenly just couldn't make my mind up. Or were you always oscillating between things when you were trying to make decisions about your lives yeah and then I think it's and then at a certain point you've made the decisions like I feel like the first half of life is making decisions and building a life and not that I'm deep into it but I would I would imagine that the second half of life is like is living in that and reflecting on that and knowing that the 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 work of creating the structures mainly if it hasn't been done it should have been done you know and if it hasn't been done then there's anxiety about that but I mean this is how I feel in my life right now like this new kind of stasis and after 20 years of like trying so hard and you know which person and which city and which work and you know and then you have it and and then what you know <laughs> like mm. like where what's that what's the work supposed to be mm. and I think the work is just a, for myself it's just like okay well now that you've done all that activity maybe the work is like 
watching, mm. you know, rather than making. Mm. I was speaking to a friend recently who's doing a concert and she wanted help to kind of build a structure around it. And I, I heard about a theater exercise where you were supposed to kind of think of your life in as three turning points, kind of, you know, like, so th at three points in life, you made three choices and what, like, it would be interesting to seeing your life through that lens. And to me, I, I could find, like, two of them were very clear to me. What were the two? The, 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 the first one was being, like, 19, having to taken, like, two years away from school and then kind of basically not continuing studies after graduating when I was right. like 15, like taking two years to kind of dreaming about actually becoming a writer and then just having uh, odd jobs and, and but, but just formulating for myself, maybe this is an alternative life, like maybe one day this could happen. And I didn't get the kind of courage to choose that by myself. I had it from an ex-girlfriend who kind of almost like convinced me to say like, she saw that I really needed to just not, yeah, not to continue and just like take a break because she thought that I would, I had this dream that I was afraid to run after in some sense. And I think that, that in my mind, that it was a main choice, like an alternative life. I would have just like continued my studies and, and kind of like not, never re realizing for letting myself know that I would dream to, to be writing in a way. Um, and the second one was to have kids. I think that those are two like main. And the third one, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, maybe writing this book. Um, <laughs> uh, but like uh, the, the first two were, were very vivid to me. Um, for you, was that very clear for you that you would be f like um, living a, a life as a writer? Or? Yeah, I made that decision at a certain point. I mean, I, I wrote since I was a child, but yeah. I also acted and took photographs and, you know, did a million different things. And then, and then I realized, like, oh, you have too many interests. You have to choose one mm. and, and, you know, theater and um, directing. And I thought, you have to choose one and sublimate all the other ones into the one and use whatever part of you that wants to take pictures, sublimate that into writing. And the, 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 writing, the taking pictures part of you will somehow manifest in the writing. So I don't know how I had the which I thought was, which I, in retrospect, I think is right. So I don't know how I knew that. But and then I remember being 21 and literally like sleeping with some man who I'd worked with mm. and leaving his house in the morning. And it wasn't a terrific experience. And um, walking home through the city to my house and walking through this little parkette and thinking, I, I'm going to be a writer and there's no alternative. And... And so that's a moment where I just felt like I really made a decision. Yeah. And it was sort of like the only decision I've actually made in my life, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you Everything have two else. more to make then? What? So you've got two more chances. I've got two more, do. yeah. But I find making decisions just as your character and possibly you just absolutely horrendous, yeah. impossible. Yeah. Um, I think that's why the main character dreams of becoming a writer, but not like towards the end, spoiler alert, but I'm going to say, so like towards the end, you know, he says this thing, like almost like threatening the father, like if you don't do a certain thing, I'm, I'm going to write about this. I think um, in some ways that's, I think of him as me if I had not, if I had made the wrong decision. You right. Know, if I had been there with the coins and I, they had told me the wrong thing, or if I hadn't had that girlfriend, girlfriend. to kind of, from the, I remember her saying, like, I think you really need to take a break to kind of focus on what you're 
dream of. And my, the voice that I heard in my head was just like, do you want me to start taking drugs as well? <laughs> like, because I was so focused on like not, and where did that come from? I, I think I came from a household or family where like, how do you say, like focusing on your dreams was not the main thing, rather focusing on something that can never be taken away from you. So like... But that is your dreams. Well, uh, I think dreams are much more kind of... Um, I think they can be squashed in some ways by, right. by, by pressure, by society, by... Right. So it's like... The, or like... Uh, when the father says um, you can always be... A, a person can always be a salesman. It's like that. That can exactly. be taken away. Yeah, 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 in a way. Yeah, because the father... The, the, the son and the father both, they share this dream of one day writing, um, but they lost the dream when they become parents in a way. And that's quite similar. Like, but my father dreamt of becoming a writer as well. So in some ways, like I, um, he actually sent a version of his early script to Bonnyesh. Now I'm looking to Bonnyesh representative here. <laughs> uh, I, I never read it, but, uh, but he actually, he wrote it in French and then it was translated into Swedish and no one knows what happens to it. But, um, <laughs> yeah. That's going to be my extra material. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. um, I'm a vegetarian and I always get asked this question like, why are you a vegetarian? But I always try and turn that on its head saying, but why do you eat meat? Is it a little bit the same thing with children? As a woman of a certain age, you get asked, right. why do you not have children? It's like, well, why did Should you we have children? turn that on its head and ask, why do people have children? I mean, I ask that. I, th I think... For some, so you know, I have always thought that I wouldn't um, have children. I've never had the desire. When I was a child, I thought I just knew when I was a child that's not going to be my future. You know, I never visualized it for myself, and I visualized lots of other things. I visualized having friends who were artists and having friends. I, I really wanted friends always, um, and uh, I think because my parents didn't have friends, you know, and so it just seemed so bleak and. Um, and um, and yeah, my mother never seemed to enjoy being a mother. So why would I fantasize about being a mother? But um, yeah, when I see people having children, I just think like, why are you doing that? Like, <laughs> it's it, it it just seems so hard, and it seems so full of suffering to be a parent, and it seems so full of pain, and the pain is like so complex like you can love your the more and the more you love the more pain there is um because you know that your child's going to leave and 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 that your child could die like that it just seems too big of a risk and the fact that everybody does it is like I didn't think that humans had that much courage you know <laughs> and maybe it's not courage maybe it's just instinct or thoughtlessness or convention or I don't know what but I I really do think the question is why why did you do this and also people complain about it so much and I really enjoy um, <laughs> your narrator um, um, you're the son mm. his problems with it because I just think well, why take this on mm. yeah. and then people think why 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 don't you take it on I mean I don't know, it's just so unknown. Mm. And if you like your life, not everybody does, but if you like your life, why would you introduce that kind of risk 
of destroying everything that you like. Mm. You, know, that's you how I feel. <laughs> you're right about this active well, turning it into an active action not to have children and seeing that as something just as amazing and that seems to, well, help the character to somehow come to terms with what she actually thinks. Yeah, because not having children looks like the lack of an action mm. and I wanted to try to write about it as, but it also is an action, mm. you know, and, and not, and I don't know if there's, I want to ask if there's a Swedish word mm. for not being a parent, because there's certainly no English word for it. And so you have no identity. And I say in the book, like, I don't want my identity to be the negative of somebody else's positive identity. Mm. So not a mother or... No, unfortunately, you just say childlessness, but right. this less, I mean, yeah. kind of turns it on, well, turns it back to this lack of something. Mm. Yeah. There's no active or filling word. Mm. Um, yeah, the well, the son in your book, he turns this kind of difficult day to day and even the more sensitive issues the risk the fear into well it's quite funny at mm. times and sad mm. how come you wanted to write about that day to day of having children uh, i'm not sure i think I, one reason was simply because i was at home with my i have two young kids so i was thinking about what to write about and i, I realized that i just realized that I kept thinking about my life as not being writable. And we mentioned Knausgård earlier. He was one person that, that, that kind of is quite interesting to shift that idea. So what happens if I actually look at my life and write it down? Like um, I had this feeling that big dramatic things took, always took place like in another world, in another language, in another country, like not in my day-to-day, -day, you know, hanging out with two kids. Uh, 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 normalcy kind of and then what I found when starting to write just like ordinary days was that they were really chaotic and very very dramatic especially because the son has this idea of perfection that he is continuously investigating what is it to be a good parent and he has kind of this panic of making the wrong choices and then just you know changing changing a diaper hanging out with a four-year-old at, at the same time trying to save the life of one year old like all these small things like spending one hour in the close to these two i was about to say creatures but uh, <laughs> is is for him it's very it takes a lot of energy um but the interesting thing is was not to write about like every day uh, uh write about the the, the kind of the challenges of a parent, I think it says something about who he is. So in this family, we know that the father, who is now old, has left uh, a child earlier in life. And that child grow, grew up and died, like led a disastrous life. So the old father thinks that maybe th that was my fault. Like maybe he, his distance created the disaster of the first child. And I think that is kind of the underlying thing in the whole family. So they all think that they've kind of internalized kind of weird idea that if a parent leaves, it will lead to disaster. So the son now thinks, well, if I'm going to do one thing right, is that I'm never going to leave my kids. I'm just going to be there, be there, be there, ultimately 100% present, and then he leaves. Like because he can't stand kind of the pressure of being perfect in some ways. Um, 
But um, on a personal note, I was really afraid of having kids because I thought that I was my main thing in life was literature and books. And I knew that something else would come and replace that. Um, it did and it didn't. Uh, I find that work became much easier after having kids um, because before I got the feeling that everything was work. Like I could work like 20 hours a day. Like I just read and wrote, read and wrote. And now I have to play with Ninja Go, you know, like this. <laughs> and, and for me personally, I think that was almost like, um, I had some years when I couldn't write. And, and, and I was really... Um, I needed someone else to kind of force, I needed them basically to, to remind me that I could not only consist of books and, and, and writing in a way. So um, it's also really good for your imagination because they're so quick in the head, like they're so fast at making illusions and like they don't call it illusions, but you know, they're, <laughs> they're really good at like, uh, yeah. Um, at, at uh, creating alternative worlds, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Your character, I mean, she does talk about that. Like, she doesn't want anything else to be more important than the writing in her life. Yeah, I mean, and it, and the kids would necessarily be more important than the writing, um, or they're less important and that's a problem you know the kids i think kids need to feel like they're the most important thing in the parents life not the mm. second most important thing so yeah when she thinks about her own mother she i think there's a passage saying that that's something that's like a story she made up that it was her mother's work that was so important that her mother was absent but actually she's come to the conclusion that it's something else the distance between them isn't really about work. Yeah, it's just who the mother is. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to talk about that. The older generation is very well present in its absence in both of your books. Um, was it difficult to decide to write about absent parents? Um, m my mother said to me the other day, because the, the character of the mother in the book is very close to my own mother and she's you know there's a line in the book where um the mother says I'm surprised you love me given how I neglected you and that was actually something that my mother said to me and you know well of course I love you you're my mother you know I'm you're you're built to love your parents unless they're I think even if they are abusive on some level you probably love them, which my mother was not abusive. She was a good mother. But in any case, so there's, she said this thing in, in life, and I put it in my book. And then two days ago, before I came here on the couch, we were talking, and, and she said, you know, when I, when I said that to you, as, she said, as soon as I said that, I realized the word neglect was wrong. And you put it in your book <laughs> as me saying that. I said, oh, mama, you know, it's a novel. No one's going to think that it's really you. <laughs> you know, don't worry about it. Um, but I kind of felt sad that she said that because I thought the word neglect was a very courageous thing for her to say and a very brave thing. And it kind of healed something in me to have her acknowledge that. Mm. So then the other day when she took it back, I felt a little sad. But, um, you know... My mother read the book several times before it was published, and I, I showed her drafts, and, um, and I said to her, you know, anything you need 
taken out, I'll take out. And that's what I did with how should a person be because, um, you know, I don't want to be the kind of person who, who loses the people that they love, you know, because they are a writer. And, you know, I want writing to make me a better person. I want writing to make me a more moral person. And, and, and so I can use my books in this way to be good to the people around me, even if I'm writing about them. If I show it to them and they need things changed, I can change it. And I would think it's my own failure as an artist if I think I can't make that change. You know, that means I'm not a good enough artist. So I've always made the changes that people ask me to make. And the only one that I was sad about in the case of this book was something that happened. My mother's a pathologist. And she said, you actually can't put that in the book because I'll, I'll lose my license. <laughs> um, so I didn't put it in. But she once brought home, she's, she once brought home a brain <laughs> in a vat of formaldehyde, like this big. And um, she wasn't supposed to bring home the brain. She was taking it from one hospital to the other. But there's procedures for this. You know, the doctors aren't supposed to do it themselves. And she took me to work one day. It was like the only day she ever drove me to work. And she said, can you, put, can you hold this between your you know, feet in the front seat? Like it was like a pot of soup. So I was holding somebody's brain between my feet in the front seat of the car. And then, she was, and then she, we happened to have this very bizarre conversation where she talked about how she wanted to have an abortion when she was pregnant with me. And, and like, it was like so, too, it was like so much like having this person's consciousness you know, and knowing that I might have never been born. And she said, can you take that scene out? And I was like, I will, but... <laughs> so now that I'm in Sweden, I'm like, okay, maybe I can say it here, far away from my mother's professional world. That was, that was sad to have to take that out. <laughs> That's terrible to hear that you took that out. Yeah, yeah that was really hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're maybe. right. Parents can't live with them past the peanuts. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Was it difficult for you to decide to write about yeah. absent father? Yeah, in some ways I think I've been waiting for this book all my life, to write this one. I was really afraid to write about many of the things in this book. And I think that now that I've written it, about it, I think that I, I feel weirdly... I offered it to my father to read, because a lot of it is just... I think when I, I think of my books, I think of them... Of, in the beginning I was kind of romanticizing my family because I was afraid of... I think I've spent a lot of my life kind of defending my family towards the outside world because there they were kind of a lot of misconceptions about my family and a lot of basically like racism on both my family's sides about us kind of. So I remember kind of in, the, in my head, I, I've spent like the first books kind of defending family and this one more, yeah, writing a started almost as a, almost like a thing where I wanted to, tell my version of our family saga, kind of. Um, and then, strangely, as I was writing it, which was not what I intended, was that I started to understand the father more and more. And that was not... I started out almost like, yeah, I'm going to give him hell, you know, that kind of thing. And then, as I was writing, I, I also started to seeing his side of it. Because one of the main things is that the father and the son come from very different economic backgrounds. Like, the father is from a very poor background, continues, he says, like, you know, you can't understand me because you don't have a brother who, like, um, kind of put 
gasoline on himself and lit himself on fire in prison. Like the father comes from a very different background than the son. So in these kind of, a lot of the conflicts that they, where they can't see eye to eye is both generational, but also kind of economical. And that was linking to what you said about fiction making you a better person. Like I, uh, I find myself that I, even though that was not the goal, that I kind of understand him a little bit more after having written it. Um, and um, yeah, there was another thing also that I kept because when I grew up, I had like a similar thing. Like I, there was a, my father had a daughter in an earlier marriage, and um, she was kind of present in our family and not present. Like she was a part of us, but still not. Like no one talked about her when she was not around, and when she come, came to visit from abroad, like she was like family, and she looked physically very much like me and. And then her life, yeah, she just, we lost her kind of. Um, she, like she went, um, uh, her life took a turn for the worst. And, and my, I think my father blamed himself a lot for that. And that was one thing that I was right. I knew that she was going to come in. Even though she was dead in the book, I, th I thought that one day she, she's going to come in and she's going to be so angry. Like she's going to be so rebellious. And what she does in the novel when she comes in is actually she takes care of him. <laughs> like we are in the head of him, the father, but she actually is the one person that he speaks to, the one person who's just like collecting his pieces and taking care of him. And I think that was, yeah, I'm not sure why that was. Maybe I'm writing who I would like to be with my father. Maybe I'm writing my kids, you know, that they will forgive me or, but there was something, um, in Swedish, we have a word called trösterikt. Is that maybe comforting? Or something com comforting, comforting about realizing that she had kind of the power to forgive. And that in itself is also like made her almost the most free person in the book. There was something in the power to say, it's all right, you tried. Um, yeah. What did your father think of the book? I don't know if he's read it. Oh. He has it. Right. Yeah. He has a physical copy of it. If <laughs> anything, but yeah, but uh, but I gave him the opportunity to 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 read before, um, and he said he started <laughs> started talking about the percentage that he wanted from sales, <laughs> 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 which is his way of his economic background. Makes yes, life yes, understandable. But also emotions yeah. terrify him. Yeah. So that's, you know, if I can quantify emotions, that makes them, you know, if I can talk about emotions as in percent, I think they, because he has the experiences of also having those emotions kind of taking over him. So I think that maybe that's also his way of treating things that feel <coughs> dangerous. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, absent fathers are more common I would say in literature maybe also in life in your family there's a bit of a reversal because your mother is the one who goes away well she doesn't disappear but she goes away to study and your father is there instead um, which at least at the time when we grew up wasn't very common it's more common perhaps today what was that like growing up in that kind of reversal of gender roles well yeah, compared to girls. what yep, was the norm of the time. Oh, it was. Um, I was aware how strange it was. It was, you know, the seventies. I was born in the seventies, nineteen seventy-six. 
fire dragon. <laughs> um, any, um, I don't know if anyone cares about that, <laughs> except for me and other people who were born in 1976. Okay, my father, um, yeah, he was like the mother. And um, everyone else's mother was like a mother, and I think I think that was very freeing to see that 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 mothering isn't doesn't have to be contained in a woman, you know. And I think that was like an amazing early example for me. And he and I just actually think of, I look at my brother and I look at my mother's father, and I think the men in my family are the nurturers. And the women in my family are the workers. And the men in my family are, ter are like terrible with money. I mean, I just feel like the women in my family are the, have, the, have that. Like my grandmother lived two blocks away when I was growing up. And she, was com ne she never babysat. She was not very interested. Um, so I think that that was probably very liberating. And, you know, my father, I, I was going to say this after you were talking about your father and, and his reaction to your book, because when I was a child, I would show my father what I wrote. Um, and, you know, talking about, like, not, not wanting to access emotion. Mm -hmm. um, my father would just copy edit it. And he wouldn't, like, <laughs> change, fix the spelling and fix the punctuation. Uh, he's an engineer. Uh, but he... Um, mm -hmm. And I would be so frustrated. I'd be like, but what do you think of the story? Mm -hmm. And, like... Mm -hmm you know, basically, what do you think of me, you mm, know? Mm. And he would never tell me. And it was almost like I, I, he, was my, he was the only person who read my stuff for years because, of course, I was a child. And now I think I got the feeling that when I write, all anybody can see is, like, the punctuation and the spelling, and people aren't really taking in the meaning of it. And I... I I don't know if, you have, if every writer has this feeling, but I attribute it to that because now when I write and publish, I can't quite believe that anybody really is reading the book. Mm. Like I can't quite believe that, it, that the substance of it or actually goes into people because mm. of this like early lesson in, well, actually all that goes in are the technical things on the surface of the page, mm. which, but maybe every writer feels that way, that actually what you've written is sort of, always contained within you and, and never goes into other bodies. Like, do you feel that way? Not really, no. No, but I, I, um, I can relate to the feeling. Like, I come from a family, like, I have a lot of teachers in my family history. So there are a lot of, um, yeah, I have a lot of people kind of proofreading after, after it's too late, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that kind of thing. And that's always lovely when you, when you know that the book has been printed. And yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. shouldn't that be a colon? <laughs> yeah. um, but but um, um, reaction-wise, I must say that my, my, my mother was really important because she showed me from an early age that books were around and could be a source of joy. I think that was the main thing that she gave me. She was not never talking to me about becoming a writer or anything, but, but she was just a devoted reader. And we had this rule when I grew up that whenever someone was not present in the family, you could read at dinner. That was a thing that we did. Uh, and because our family was like someone was always never there kind of so we would always be reading like she would read her stuff I would be reading like a you know comics or anything but like given from early on the feeling that re like life is okay but it can be, be made better through reading so that I think that that's a 
main thing she gave me, I think. And she came up with that rule probably because she wanted to read. Yeah, she was just <laughs> sick of us, I think. <laughs> yeah. She was just sick of us. And also she was dying to have an adult around. I think yeah. that was the thing because my father was fantastic. He's amazing. But she, he also had this strange ability to disappear. Yeah. Which is a great thing if, you know, you're a magician or something, but it's, <laughs> it's not as good if you're a father. Like, then you should be able to be trusted. So I think what she was longing for was some kind of adult company, and that yeah. she found it in her books, and, and that... But I must tell you, like, when, when before I was a father, now I'm a father of two, uh, like, so my mother is a grandmother, and she's an amazing grandmother, like, very present, and I love her dearly. But before I was a father, we had, like, lunch at a veg vegetarian restaurant, and then we were drinking coffee afterwards, and then out of the blue, without any apparent reasons, she said, like, Jonas, just so you know, I really don't have any urge to be a grandmother. <laughs> and I was just like, what? <laughs> like, wh why do you say, what, what are you trying to communicate? Oh, yeah, and she doesn't want to be a grandmother. <laughs> maybe that was the thing, yeah, yeah. No, I think that... There was something else. I think that was her saying, just so you know, when you're a father, you will understand what I did for you. Like you will understand the, the kind of how, how, how many hours I devoted to make you into an adult kind of, and you will not be able to depend on, like I will not do that again. Like I think it was right. a cry for yeah. freedom. Yeah. Saying, I've done enough. Like I've, I've, I did everything and you didn't see me. Like I was, because that's the strange thing in a family, like the one who's present, you kind of tend to forget, ignore, yeah. ignore, yeah. So I think that was her just saying, I was so present that you forgot about me, I will not do that again. Or like, and, and something similar happens in the book when the mother comes in towards the end. I thought that she would do, you know, in a classic part, like patriarchal way, kind of I was expecting her to kind of glue the family together again. But she was just like, no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing that. that. <laughs> no, yeah. I've done enough, kind of, that kind of thing. And that was also strangely li liberating for her to be able to say, like, actually, I have my own life. Um, that was her, she was also liberating herself, I guess, by, through the, yeah, taking her hand from, from the family conflict. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you, because if, if the example of the father that you had and that the character has is somebody who leaves, mm -hmm. Is there a part of you or the character that um, therefore thinks that the way to be an adult is to leave? Mm -hmm. And so when your character leaves, it's like almost testing out like, or trying to be an adult because that's what an adult does. Yeah. And that's how you become an adult is by leaving. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's terrified of that. I think he's terrified of being his father. Of being, I think he's terrified of being able to leave. But also wants to leave. <laughs> Yeah, wanting to leave, leaving, and then realizing I can't even leave. Yeah. That's, you know, like that, even that is not an alternative, so I have to go back. Yeah. And then in some weird way, I think that's, it doesn't mean that the father and son will have like a glorious future together and understand each other, no. but there's something in the son's realization of wanting to leave, not being able to leave, that makes him understand how tragic his father is. Yeah. You know, there's something, oh, oh, wait, he actually had the ability to leave his own kids. And, yeah, that's, in some weird way, the son understands the father, and, and maybe the father understands the son more. Towards yeah, the he's end. the only one who understood why the son doesn't come home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You write about 
leading a life turned towards your mother rather than towards the next generation. Um, and you also talk a little bit about the family history, what comes before your mother. She also lived, in a way, turned towards her mother rather than turned towards you and your your brother. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what you, what you mean with that? Y- yeah, there's just this, um, I guess, this expectation in culture that life is turned towards the next generation um and that's and then in my book I kind of sort of see actually it can it can be just as legitimate to turn backwards like you know why have a child and try to raise that child when equally valuable could be turning backwards towards your mother and solving her problems you know that there is a I do think that a human needs to turn to others and help others and but why do you have to make a new life and also this idea in the book of um solving the mother's sadness and solving the grandmother who's no longer alive but solving her sadness and and I talk I say in the book that art is um so children is eternity forwards and art is eternity backwards you know and that you know we make art for our literary mothers and fathers and I kind of I don't know if you feel that way but I I feel like when I write in some way it's to the dead authors who are my who are the greatest writers I've ever read mm. and I'm writing for them even though they'll never see it and and but that's a feeling of eternity to write towards the the unreachable dead is the same as I think people feel when they think now I have a child and that child's going to have a child and I'll live on, I'll live on through you know this this future that I'll never see. To me, the the dream with books is is sort of to live live on through the past through these souls of these books that will never, but that I can imagine my books into that I can imagine my books into this this space that goes back through time, mm. you know? And also there's a reference in the book that says that and all of these books were written by people who were really, really lonely. Yeah, all the, yeah, this is something my friend said to me, which yeah. was that what, what good can the, wis- how much wisdom can the books have, who, can books have, um, because books are written by the loneliest men who ever lived, mm. you know, men mm. and women, but mm. I think, I think there's something there, like why are you turning to books for, solace mm. but I but actually I think that that's the paradox of it is because mm. it is it does come out of loneliness that it can also go into loneliness mm. yeah I know that you both wanted to maybe read a little bit to us from your well respective books um, who'd like to go first okay. ladies first sure Yeah, so we chose, we just chose right before we stepped on stage, so I'm reading from my phone. I'm not texting. (laughs) Um, I didn't know I should bring my book. Okay, so this is um, from near the beginning. Whether I want kids is a secret I keep from myself. It is the greatest secret I keep from myself. The thing to do when you're feeling ambivalent is to wait. But for how long? Next week I'll be 37. Time is running short on making certain decisions. How can we know how it'll go for us, us ambivalent women of 37? On the one hand, the joy of children. On the other hand, the misery of them. On the one hand, the freedom of not having children. 
on the other hand, the loss of never having had them. But what is there to lose? The love, the child, and all those motherly feelings that the mothers speak about in such an enticing way, as though a child is something to have, not something to do. The doing is what seems hard. The having seems marvelous. But one doesn't have a child, one does it. I know I have more than most mothers, but I also have less. In a way, I have nothing at all. But I like that and think I do not want a child. Yesterday, I talked on the phone with Teresa, who is about 50 years old. I said that it seemed like other people were suddenly ahead of me with their marriages, their houses, their children, their savings. She said that when a person has those feelings, they need to look more closely at what their actual values are. We have to live our values. Often people are streamed into the conventional life, the life there's so much pressure to live. But how can there only be one path that's legitimate? She says this path is often not even right for many of the people who wind up living it. They become 45, 50, then they hit a wall. It's easy to bob along the surface, she said, but only for so long. Do I want children because I want to be admired as the admirable sort of woman who has children? Because I want to be seen as a normal sort of woman? Or because I want to be the best kind of woman? A woman with not only work, but the desire and ability to nurture, a body that can make babies, and someone who another person wants to make babies with? Do I want a child to show myself to be the normal sort of woman who wants and ultimately has a child? The feeling of not wanting children is the feeling of not wanting to be someone's idea of me. Parents have something greater than I'll ever have, but I don't want it, even if it's so great, even if in a sense they've won the prize or grabbed the golden ring, which is genetic relief, relief at having procreated, success in the biological sense, which on some days seems like the only sense that matters, and they have social success too. There's a kind of sadness in what... There's a kind of sadness in not wanting the things that give so many other people their life's meaning. There can be sadness at not living out a more universal story, the supposed life cycle, how out of one life cycle another cycle is supposed to come. But when out of your life no new cycle comes, what does that feel like? It feels like nothing. Yet there is a bit of a letdown feeling when the great things that happen in the lives of others, you don't actually want those things for yourself. Maybe I should <clears throat> read something that is kind of a response to that when it comes to kind of the, the doing of being a parent. Uh, I would just read a, um, a section from um, this novel where uh, it's just a normal day with kids. <clears throat> and they've been up since four o'clock. <laughs> it's important to know. <laughs> Ettåringen reser sig mot byrån i hallen och vrålar imponerat åt att han inte ramlar Fyraåringen vill hjälpa honom att gå men lyckas istället fälla honom Ettåringen gråter, fyraåringen skrattar Ettåringen biter fyraåringen i smalbenet Fyraåringen gråter, ettåringen försvinner De hittar honom inkrupen under vardagsrumsbordet med två plastpärlor i munnen Pappan bär ettåringen till fyraåringens rum Alla ska klä på sig Fyraåringen vill ha shorts och fotbollströja Pappan förklarar att det är vinter eller i alla fall sen höst. Hon vill ha shorts på sig under de vanliga byxorna. Pappan ger med sig. Ettåringen är försvunnen. 
De hittar honom i sovrummet, vid sängbordet med vassa metallhörn. Han har precis lyckats pela bort det vita plastskyddet som sitter där just för att hörnet är så vast. Fyraåringen vill leka med Duplo fast bara om pappan är med och ettåringen inte får vara med. Alla leker med Duplo, alla utom ettåringen som sitter längre bort med den där nöjda minen som man bara har när han har något i munnen. Pappan lekar ut en av mammans öronproppar ur ettåringens mun. Ettåringen börjar skrika. Fyraåringen bygger ett garage. Ettåringen river garaget. Fyraåringen kastar en boll på ettåringen. Ettåringen tror att det är en lek och hämtar bollen och ger den till fyraåringen. Fyraåringen gömmer bollen. Ettåringen hittar ett legodäck och stoppar in det i munnen. Pappan fiskar ut legodäcket ur ettåringens mun med samma hand som tio minuter tidigare var nedkörd i toaletten. Fyraåringen säger... Det krävde kanske lite förkunskap just den. Fyraåringen säger att hon har tröttnat på att leka med Duplo. Ettåringen gnuggar sina ögon. Pappan tittar på rockan och inser att det är en och en halv timme kvar tills fyraåringen ska lämnas på förskolan. Han önskar att tiden kunde gå snabbare. Han önskar att förskolan hade en ledig plats till ettåringen. Ibland när de ska äta förfrukost som är frukosten som de äter som förrätt till frukosten som fyraåringen äter på förskolan försöker pappan prata om vuxensaker med fyraåringen. Han tar fram tidningen och visar en bild på Filippinernas president. Han förklarar vad upplopp betyder. Han säger att humanitära insatser är det som behövs när människor har jätteont om mat. Fyraåringen nickar och ser ut att förstå. Sen säger hon att alla människor med rep runt halsen är presidenter. Och pappan håller med. Väldigt ofta när man ser någon med slips i tidningen så är det en president. Eller i alla fall en politiker, säger pappa. Efter förfrukosten byter de ut kläderna som är lite smutsiga. Sen leker de rymdforskare eller tigerfamilj eller tjuvopolis eller eldkastare och brandman eller noshörningar som stampar medan noshörningsfoten i golvet för att signalera att de är arviga och ska börja stångas. Sen byter de blöja på ettåringen den sista gången sen är det dags att gå till förskolan. Fyraåringen klär på sig själv. Allt är en tävling. Först att få på sig flisen vinner. Jag vann, ropar fyraåringen. Försten att få på sig overallen. Jag vann igen, ropar fyraåringen. Försten att trycka på hissknappen. Jag är verkligen snabbast i hela världen, säger fyraåringen och pappan nickar. Pappan håller med. Fyraåringen är verkligen exceptionellt snabb. Otroligt smart, fantastiskt duktig på allt som finns att vara duktig på. Men samtidigt, någonstans inom sig, hör pappan en viskning som säger I helvete heller. Du är inte alls bäst på allt. Jag skulle till exempel kunna klä på mig supersnabbt om jag bara ville. Jag kan brotta ner det jättelätt om jag bara tar i mitt hårdaste. Jag är mycket bättre än huvudräkningen du, för jag behöver inte använda fingrarna när jag ska plussa tre och tre. Och du vet alla de där bokstäverna som folk blir så imponerade av att du kan. Jag kan dem också. Allihopa. Mycket bättre än du. The Swedish is not normally that fast. I'm, I'm trying desperately to be. I was at the book fair recently. And my my editor in front of like a crowd said, said he's going to read it switch quickly because he's a fan of Kendrick Lamar's. So that's what I'm trying to. Uh, I mean, I can't Kendrick understand Lamar. anything you said, but it's very musical. Your writing, it you can hear that even mm. not knowing the language. Almost like. Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no. But it's also it, like I read it quickly because the, the, the feeling of... Yeah, the, the, the panic. Yeah, so basically we're in this yeah. morning when the guy is just like trying desperately to be a good father, but at the same time also weirdly in competition with his kids. Yeah. And that's sort of like... I found that interesting when I was at home with my kids that there were moments when I kind of were performing my own parenthood. Yeah. In front of them or in front of others. And also like a number of men who were at home with their kids kind of we were like texting each other, like, well, 
here we are, blueberry picking, you know, <laughs> like showing each other that showing we were good. And why was that? Like this main, the similar thing, what, what linked us together, what all of us had fathers who were at periods and times distant, fathers who were distant in periods. So it, it was as if we were trying to reinvent fatherhood in right. at the help of each other, basically. It's um, kind of beautiful. Yeah, but also like uh, weirdly childlike. Yeah, it you know is what I mean. Very, far, very yeah. far from just like inhibiting fatherhood or like parenthood, we wanted to perform it in f in some ways, and also maybe getting a little bit of a, an applause for. But I think women do that for each other too. They perform yeah. it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I think any role you being in a couple, you kind of perform coupleness for other yeah. couples. You know, that's just part yeah. of yeah. what everyone does. Yeah, yeah. It's maybe maybe you think in my head, I think that. I would perform any, everything and ev anything except being a parent. Do you know what I mean? Because it's so sacred? Because it, it should be so natural? If that doesn't come natural, then what, what, what does? Yeah, what does? Yeah, I think. Well, but doesn't writing come natural? Yes, yes. So I should stop having <laughs> babies. <laughs> um, not quite sure I wanted to end it on that. <laughs> But um, time is kind of running out. I, I did want to talk a little, tiny little bit about this, well, this role of the mother, this way that we look at mothers, what you were alluding to, but also how we look at women who choose not to have children. Um, because I think we're quite set in what we think about people who make these choices. We think that we know a lot of things about them and also reading your book it's quite interesting how many people think that they can educate you about whether you should have children or not um, how many how much advice people seem to be willing to give you and that I think is also true when you're a mother you're also constantly educated by people on the bus or by your friends or by the older generation in yeah in both when it comes to having children I guess people just seem to want to tell you about how to do it. Um, how did you feel about that, all these people who kept telling you whether to have children or not, or how to think about having children? I, don't actually, I think that was really something that was more created in the, in the fiction of the book, mm -hmm. because the people around me aren't like that. Mm -hmm. um, the people around me are much more understanding and accepting but I wanted to make that the context in which this character is trying to make her decision because I think that is the experience of a lot of people whose circles are more conventional than mine um, you know uh, so I, I don't feel like I actually got that so much but I, I think it is a reality for, for many people and um, I mean my my friend said something good, which which I thought was really true, which is that um, societies that don't put pressure um, on people to have children and that don't hold up these roles as being somehow sacred and beautiful die out. So they aren't. They don't. You know. They don't exist. Um, so every society that exists is one that puts so much pressure on people to do this thing. Um, I mean, I think it's I think it's a bit of a silly thing to say, but it's also kind of true. Like, it's it's there because the people that, and it's also like the people that have a desire to to have children 
there, if that is something innate, which I talk about in the book, I think it is also, I mean, I, I feel like I talk about it in the book as like, it's a kind of sexuality not to want to have children. Because for me, my experience of not wanting to have children feels as fundamental to who I am as my sexual orientation. So I, I basically am straight. Um, and that feels like something I've known since I was th three or four years old, you know, having a crush on the boy across the street. And at the exact same time in my life, I knew I wasn't going to be, I didn't want to be a mother. And I feel like there's, I feel like, I, I, I wonder if, if there is actually something almost genetic. You know, if I look at my mother, I don't think if she lived today, if she grew up in the era that I did, I don't think she would have chosen to have children. But in her generation, it was just, you didn't, it wasn't, it would have been too radical not to. So I think there's, I think it's, yeah, I think it's part of your sexuality. Because some women really, really want children, and some men really, like my father, really wants children, and I, I feel like that's innate. Um, yeah, so I feel like if we can sort of recognize, I think if that's true and that we can recognize that, then then people will stop giving advice in that sense. We'll stop saying, well, you will change your mind or just have children and you'll see, you know. It's it's like saying to somebody who's gay, like, or saying to a a, a gay man, like, you should really try women, you know, their bodies smell so great, you're just like, well, that has nothing to do with me, you know. Um, there's, this, there's this book by this Israeli writer, uh, Orna Donath, called Regretting Motherhood, and it's, she's a sociologist, and um, it's a really tragic book, because she interviews these women who regret having become mothers, and they love their children, and they're good mothers, but they just say, this was not what I should have done with my life, like, this was the wrong, the wrong decision, and they, they sound like, you would imagine a, a man trapped, a homosexual man trapped in a marriage with a woman 50 years ago. Like, they just sound like they've lived the wrong life. And, um, yeah, I don't think people should pressure other people to have children. Yeah. Well, I think it's the, the, of course, there's like a stigma for anyone who is a parent to say that there were moments when I, w I want to leave, you know, because you're, you're supposed to take care of people that you create. But I think the stigma is much worse if you're a female. Yeah. Um, I think in my, uh, among the friends that I grew up, the stigma was already quite, uh, uh, it was linked to a lot of guilt because all of us grew up with this idea that we were not going to be like our fathers. Mm -hmm. like the, and that put a pressure on like, being ultimately very, very present in a way. Uh, so I think in our group that would also be quite looked down upon if we were to lo like leave our kids. But um, I did a talk uh, recently. There, there was a woman who got up who had read the book and said that um, she could very much relate to the um, narrator's willingness to leave. And she just said, well, you know, I'm, I have kids. I love my kids. But um, for, for every time I've had kids during these, like, um, when they were young, when they were toddlers, like there were so many moments when I just wanted to leave, leave them. And when she said it, it was, it was something different. Like if a man had said, I, there was something weird in that room when she said, it was almost like I could, it felt like the room were expecting like guards to come in and arrest her, you know, like, yeah. uh, hey, you, you're, because there's something about, so I think, I think this, you're completely right, that the stigma is even worse if you're, which may be linked to the fact that the, new person comes out of your body you know like that that um yeah, it's it's you in a much more fundamental yeah. way because yeah it comes out of your body. yeah i remember thinking that, that with both my kids it's been very clear for the first moment that they are not me and i'm so thankful about that 
Yeah. I saw that, and I remember like thinking that they would be me, like small me's running around. Yeah. Like writing and <laughs> reading Tolstoy. <laughs> no, but just like I had this idea that I would give birth to myself. Maybe it was also linked to gender because they're, um, they're both, of, I have two sons. But it was very clear from, from like first moment, it felt very clear to me that they were their own selves. Mm. And to me, having come from a background, not wanting to kind of repeat family traits, that was such a, yeah, glory. That was always like defeating time, you know. Yeah, like, right. And I, I know new. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, of course they're going to attack me and they will write their own books about me and things <laughs> will continue, but, but, but not, hopefully not in the same, the same, the, 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 some of the issues, maybe they will understand me a bit more and, and uh, yeah, not the same kind of, of books, I hope. <laughs> Different kind of books. Thank you so very much.